I want you to think about David's life up to this point. Think of all that he, that he has done and all that he had become. Uh, you know, today we, we may refer to someone, have you ever heard the phrase, uh, uh, jack of all trades, master of none? You ever heard of that? Well, for David, it was almost the opposite. He was like the master of all trades and, and jack of none. Because, I, I mean, he, was, he came from nothing, the youngest son of an extremely ordinary family. They, they weren't even from the tribe of Benjamin, which was the warrior tribe. So, you know, where did David get this, uh, where did he learn this military strategy that he, that he had? Uh, how, how, where did he learn the sophisticated tactics he used in battle? How did David, how did he learn how to play the lyre? You know, how did, how did he, who taught him how to write poetry? You know, I mean, the beauty of what he wrote. We all know uh, just part of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I mean, who writes that kind of stuff? He was a, David was a multifaceted genius and a nationwide celebrity at a very young age. David was king at the age of 30 and, and already the most feared warrior in the whole region. But here's what I know, stardom at a young age can have its consequences. How many of you have seen, you know, child stars and how their lives later on, they, had, they get so much so early and, and too much too soon can be a pathway to pain. And David's early life was replete with these rich, amazing stories. I mean, he killed lions and bears with his bare hands. And he, he brought down a giant with a rock. He, he sang a king to sleep. He circumcised 200 Philistines. He was supernaturally protected at, in Naoth. And he became the Philistines' most successful uh, warrior. Upon becoming king, he conquered Jebus and made the fortress his new capital. And and David, through all of this, he quickly established Israel as a force to be reckoned with in the Middle East. And then he brought the ark into Jerusalem and, and brought all of God's blessings so that those blessings would continue to flow upon his nation. And he's still in, only in his 30s. And King David, I mean, he was at the top of the world. And he felt unstoppable. You know, young people... Have you ever noticed young people uh, sometimes feel bulletproof? Or in David's case, arrowproof? You know? And that's a dangerous place for a man of God to be. Because at every new level that you go, there's a new devil to deal with. And I don't mean a specific devil by name. I'm just saying that every, as you continue, as you grow, as there's greater accomplishments, as the Lord does new things and He takes you to new places... There are going to be new struggles. There are going to be new attacks. There are going to be new issues that you have to deal with. And in, in this middle part of David's life, David was about to, consider, about to encounter some new and, and deadly devils. And we're going to get to, to some of those. But 2 Samuel 7.1 says this. When King David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, the king summoned Nathan the prophet. Now, that's a significant thing. This chapter opens by saying that King David was settled in his palace. This, this seemingly throwaway phrase in Scripture truly signals a turning point in David's life because there has not been a point in his life since God called him, since he was anointed by the prophet Samuel, there has not been a point in his life that has been settled. 
He's no longer a shepherd boy guiding his sheep. He's not the horseback warrior, you know, chasing down evil enemies. He's not the the feared outlaw in the desert uh, cave. He's not the the, the guerrilla raider uh, uh, raiding the Amalekites' towns. And and he, he was now a king sitting in his palace. So finally, there's some peace and prosperity in the land. There's a new sense of significance for the young king. And it was in this condition of life and heart that, that David calls the prophets Nathan. Now this is the first time that Nathan is mentioned, uh, but he plays a significant part coming up. And he says to him, he's, David says, look, I am living in a beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of God is out there in a tent. Basically he's saying, you know, uh, well anyway, Nathan replied to the king, he said, go ahead and do whatever you have in your mind for the Lord is with you. So David says here, he says, Nathan, I have this beautiful palace in which to live, this beautiful cedar uh, building, and, and the Ark of the Covenant is still being housed in what amounts to an oversized tent. And David says, that just does not seem right to me. Don't you think it would be a good idea for me to build a, a, a building, build a temple for the Ark? And Nathan immediately responds. He says, that's a great idea, David. You should build the temple. God is with you on this. But... Listen to what happened next. In verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 4. But that same night, the Lord said to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? I have never lived in a house from the day I brought the Amalekites out of Egypt until this very day. I have always moved from one place to another with a tent, and a tabernacle is my dwelling. Yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I have never once complained to Israel's tribal leaders, the shepherds of my people Israel. I have never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? Now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth. And I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And if he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. Now as we read this, there are two lessons in here that I think it's, it's important that I want to talk about. First, there was a lesson in this for the prophet Nathan. Because what did Nathan do? David said, hey, I've got this beautiful place to live and the, and the Ark of the Tabernacle is just in a tent. Nathan says, the Lord's with you, do it. Well, you know, Nathan heard David's uh, idea about building the temple, and he says, yeah, that's a great idea, and it was a great idea. Later that night, however, God comes to Nathan and has a little talk with him, and he said, Nathan, I need to remind you how being a prophet works. First, God talks, 
Then the prophet talks. Not vice versa. Nathan hadn't had time. He, he just spoke and he said, God's with you, but he had not heard from God. And that lesson's not just for Nathan, but for us, you know, especially as, as uh, Pentecostal Christians, we believe in the supernatural gifts of the Spirit, including the gift of prophecy. We believe that God still speaks to us today through the Holy Spirit. Always, uh, now, uh, I always have to say this, always in line with the Word of God. He's not going to speak something that's not already uh, here. He's not going to speak out of the principle of his character. But here's the lesson for us that we can learn from Nathan in this situation. Of course, you know, you know what wisdom is. Wisdom is when you can learn from other people's mistakes, not your own. <laughs> and so here's some wisdom for us. Be slow to speak for God. Now, if you have a word from God, by all, by all means, speak that word. But be careful, though, not to respond out of your emotions. There's those moments when uh, in, in the thrill of the moment, the adrenaline's going, the emotions are going, and it's easy for us to jump in and out of our emotions begin to speak to somebody and we say, this is a word from the Lord, this is a word from the Lord. But I, I say, you need to wait for a firm answer from God. Don't say, thus saith the Lord, lightly. That's a serious thing when you say, I have a word from, uh, uh, from the Lord for you. That is a very serious thing. That's a very serious moment. Don't say that lightly because one day we will give account to God for our idle words. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be forced to answer to him for saying that he said something that he didn't say. Doesn't that, does that make sense? It's better to wait on the Lord and be certain about what he's saying than to, than to have to go back and say, Hey, you know, uh, you know when I said, thus saith the Lord, and I heard from God about this? Uh, well, I hadn't heard from God. I was wrong. You know, it's better to make sure you hear from God. Now, I'm not saying that you, you, you sit around and don't speak when the Lord uh, lays a word on your heart for somebody else. But I am saying... You know, I, I've even told people, people have come up to me from time to time over the years and they'd say something like they'd say, hey, um, I've got a, a word from the Lord for you. And I've, oftentimes I've stopped them and I said, listen, if it's really a word from the Lord, I want to hear it. But if, if it's not, you be sure this is truly a word from God because I don't want you to put yourself in a position where you claim to be speaking for God and you're not. So be, just know, and, and you know, it's not like complicated. You don't have to put like fleeces before the Lord and that sort of thing. Jesus said, my, my sheep know my voice. But that's the first lesson is be, you know, be cautious in using that phrase. Make sure that you truly have heard from God before you say, I have heard from God. Don't let it be an emotional moment. The other lesson is for David. None of, interesting thing is, none of what God spoke through Nathan is a rebuke. There's nothing he said there that rebuked David. He didn't look at him, you know, speak to David and say, hey, you know, I can't believe you're such an idiot that, you know, you think you're going to build a house for me. Uh, in a sense, he said a phrase similar to that, but he, he didn't use it. He didn't speak, he didn't phrase it as a rebuke. God's word to David is, is more of a loving warning from a father to a son. He said, listen, if you build me a house, it may be the final blow, the final nail in your coffin of, uh, of pride. After all, I've already done through you this thing. Uh, must leave, you've got to leave this for somebody else. And in, in essence, it's interesting because David had this idea of building God a house. And if you read about halfway through that passage, 
God replies to David and says, I'm building your house. He says, David, you, you, I, I haven't had a house. He, he's basically saying, you can't build a house for me. I created everything anyway. I've been in a tent. That's where my presence has dwelt. And I've been, uh, that's where I've wanted to be. And he's saying, you know, it, it, there's a little bit of pride that's creeping into David's heart here because he's thinking, I can do this for God. I can do him a favor here. And, 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 and God is saying to him, you know, I'm going to build your house. But the problem with David's idea is what, what could man build that is suitable for God? I mean, he created everything, right? He created everything. Anything that, that we would offer him would be created. It already belongs to him, right? And, and so how can any structure created by man house the God of the universe? In fact, God said in Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? So this spirit of pride, this sense of pride, it looks like maybe it had begun to creep into the heart of David, in which, by the way, pride, I believe, is one of the, if not the, it is certainly one of the most insidious sins of all because it is the hardest to see in ourselves. You know why that is? It's because pride will tell me I'm okay. So it makes it really hard to see in ourselves now, other people oftentimes will see it, but, the, but that began to creep in. It, it wasn't overt. It wasn't full grown. It was a seed that was beginning to grow that, that later caused David some immense trouble and some sorrow. But always overflowing grace, God also reminded David of the long-term blessing that was his. He, he told David, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make your name uh, great. You'll be famous, more famous than anybody else to the, to the end of time. But he reminded David of this. He, he reminded David that he was the one who had done all of these things. David did not accomplish any of these things. It was God who gave David the, 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 the anointing and the power to kill the lion and the bear. It was God who gave David the anointing to kill Goliath. It was God who raised David up from the fields of Bethlehem to a palace in Jerusalem. It was God who led David's armies through all of those battles and, and won all those victories. It was God who made the name of a shepherd boy great among the nations. And he was reminding David, listen, you don't need to worry about me. I've been the one doing this all along. I've been the one orchestrating this. I'm the one who put you where you are. I know you're in a cedar palace. I know you're there because I put you there. You don't need to worry about me. I'll take care of it. And he, and he, and he, and he had this message for him. And listen, God may well call us to face great challenges. Or he may call you to do great feats for him. Uh, he, he may call you to overcome great obstacles in your lifetime. However, if you get yourself in that place that somehow you think I'm doing great things for God and I'm building a house for God, he will oftentimes, sometimes uh, uh, painfully, but always firmly remind you that he is the one that's building his kingdom. He is the one that's doing those things through you. It is not you. He reminds us, you don't raise me up. I raise you up. So as, as though God's word of grace and reassurance to David wasn't incredible enough, he followed it with this wonderful however. Because he said, David, and if you, if you read the parallel passage from Chronicles, uh, this passage in Samuel, he, he said, 
would you build a house for me? But in Chronicles, the parallel passage, it reads a little differently. It says, you're not going to build a house for me. But he adds at the end of all this, he adds this great however. He says, you're not going to do it, David. However, when you die, I'm going to allow your son to build such a temple. And, and you know what I love about that? And this is the older I get, the more meaningful this becomes to me. Because sometimes God allows a second generation of leadership to accomplish the dream of the previous leader. And, and you know, that's one of the, I'm at the stage in my life and my ministry that one of the things I love doing most, I love to sit down with young ministers and teach them what little bit I have learned. Because, you know, starting out in ministry, uh, how many years ago? 33 years ago now. Back in 85 is when I started right out of Bible college, you know, and, and you have these dreams and you have these ideas. and You say, oh, I want to do this for Lord. I want to do there. I want to go there. I want to do that. I want to do all these things. And, you know, now after 33 years, there are a lot of those things that I dreamed about that have not happened. And I don't know if they're going to happen. I, I, I pray that they still will happen. But here's what I've learned is that if they do not happen in my lifetime and in my ministry, that maybe I can pour my life into another young person. And if I can't do it, maybe they can. And it's still the same dream. And it's still the same God who gets the glory. And that's what David began to realize. He began to realize it's not me. But another generation is going to come behind me that can do more, that can take it to another level. And, and that's, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, God had reserved this great accomplishment for David's son. And it was not out of punishment. It wasn't out of spite, but it was out of love. Because God is, is extremely aware of the pride men can feel when they begin to survey everything that they have supposedly accomplished. It's easy to get to a place. Imagine if you were David. If you had gone through everything that you'd gone through and you had finally gotten to the place you were now the king of Israel, it'd be easy to look at that and say, hey, I did pretty good here. It's easy for him to forget. I'm only here because God put me here. And God understood that. And I believe that's one of the reasons. Now, we know that, that he said you're a man of blood and, and that was part of it. But I also think a part of it was that it was God protecting David from his own pride. And the, the, uh, uh, that, that it would just be too much for one man to, to claim all these things. So he would leave the temple for another king to build. But then as David, you know, uh, by the way, I want to say this. David's response to this was, uh, was like the old David. He was very humble. And he, he, it says he, he just sat before the Lord. He sat in the Lord's presence. I, we don't know what that meant, that meant that he went out where the ark was or if he went to his bedroom, but he just sat in the Lord's presence and just said, Lord, I give you praise. I know, he, he said, I know you are the one who has done all of these things. And I'm just grateful that you let me be part of it. What a great response when God said no. How many of you, has God ever said no to you? Yeah, of course he has because he's a good father. There is, it's impossible to be a good father and never say no to your children. Isn't it true? Yes. You know, if, if you as a father say yes to everything your children ask, people are not going to walk away saying, man, that's such a good dad. 
They're going to walk away saying, that, that man is a horrible father, and all he does is indulge his children, and, and uh, he's just ruining them. They're not going to have a future. Well, God is a better dad than any of us. So he says no to us sometimes. He said no to David. David said, I really want to do this. I think his, you know, I think his, ultimately his heart was in the right place because he thought this is a good thing. And it was a good thing. It was a good idea because God eventually did it. He, he did accomplish that. But God said, David, no. No, that's not for you. That's for somebody else. And we can learn from David's response when God says no because his response was, okay, well, you're God. I see everything else you've done, so I know I can trust you. So anyway, as, as King David uh, became king uh, and, and he built Israel's military into the substantial force, uh, what he began to do early on, the first thing he did was, you know, remember he, uh, he, he made Jerusalem the, the capital, and so he became the, the political and the military and the spiritual leader of Israel. We talked about that last week. But then once he got into that city and that stronghold, he began extending his kingdom. He began pushing the borders out. He knew this. He knew that, that if this tiny country of Israel remained the size that it was at the moment, that Israel would forever be fighting defensive wars, both military and politically. And David knew that Israel must expand and push their enemies further away. He needed space. And so David began moving out against all the surrounding nations that had opposed him in the past, the Moabites, the Edomites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, Ammonites, the Philistines, the Amalekites, and all kinds of otherites. No termites in there, though. Just want to make sure you're still listening. And since Israel was still surrounded by all those enemies, see, just because he became king and he's in Jerusalem now, doesn't mean that the enemies just stopped. They still hated Israel. They still hated David. Maybe they hated him more than ever. And, and David said, I'm not going to just sit here in Jerusalem and wait for them to attack me because I know that's what they're going to do. They're going to lay siege to the city. They're going to cut off supplies. They're going to try to choke this, this new young uh, nation to death. They're going to try to, to, to destroy us. So in 2 Samuel chapter 8, we get this kind of a full recap of David's border extension campaign. Verse 3, it says this, David also destroyed the forces of Hadadezer, son of, of Rehob, king of Zobah, when Hadadezer marched out to strengthen his control along the Euphrates River. So here's Hadadezer. He's this great Syrian warrior king, and he makes a power move. You know, David becomes king of Israel, and he moves down along the Euphrates River, and, 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 uh, and he's going to try to solidify his position there. In this interim time, Saul's dead. they got a new king. Maybe now's the time I can expand my borders. But David, he goes up and fights him and extends, he defeats him and he extends the kingdom of Israel all the way up to the Euphrates River, nearly to what is now Iraq, crippling his enemies in the north. And in that, in that campaign, he captured 1,000 chariots, 7,000 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. And he hamstrung all but 100 chariot horses, which those he kept for himself. David, he, he was both feared and hated by the nations surrounding Israel. And their, their leaders very quickly began to realize that the new nation's strength was, was greater than what they anticipated. And many of them decided to begin to pursue peace with this young, unpredictable king. 
In, in fact, one of them was a man named King Toy, T-O-I, King Toy of Hamath. He was a long-time time enemy of Hadadezer. And, and he was among those who realized, and it, you know, he was smart enough to realize very quickly that it was healthier to be David's friend than it was to be David's enemy. And so how many of you heard the phrase, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? So since he had been a longtime enemy of Hadadezer and David defeated him, he said, I'm going to, you know, try to get in with this guy. So he, he sent gifts of gold and silver and bronze to David. And, and so now this young king of Israel is not only defeating armies and expanding militarily, but he's also making political allies. He's solidifying his kingdom at the diplomatic well, uh, level as well as the military. So David then moved south against Edom where he killed 18,000 of their finest soldiers and placed garrisons throughout their nation. And he made servants of their citizens as well. And David's name became famous wherever he went because the Lord gave him unprecedented victories. And with every new victory came new borders. And the enemies are getting pushed further and further back away from Jerusalem and away from Israel. David was, was making his mark and he did so with both mercy and with an uncomfortable bloodthirst, something that we're not as comfortable with today. But we've got to remember the time that they, in which they lived. This, was how, this is how they lived. And when the king of the neighboring Ammonites died, David decided that he would reach out to the new king, whose name was Hanun. Uh, and he did it because his father, the king who died, King Nahash, had shown friendship to David. And, and so David sent some emissaries to Hanun, uh, just to express his sympathies for the death of his father. And while they were there, Hanun accuses them of being spies. And King Hanun sent the emissaries away, humiliated, and, and he, he cut their beards halfway off, which was, a, which was a total disgrace in those days. I mean, to have your beard cut off was a terrible thing. But then worse than that, he cut their robes off at the waist and sent them back home half naked, half shaved. Total humiliation. Knowing, I mean, he should have known. I mean, David has this reputation. He doesn't, does, just doesn't let things go. And so he knows there's going to be retaliation. So uh, Hanun, he, he thinks, okay, I'm going to dig myself out of this, uh, this disaster. And he, he begins seeking allies and, and hiring mercenaries. And he reinforced his army with 20,000 Aramean mercenaries and 1,000 soldiers from Makkah and 12,000 from, uh, from Tob. And, and led by Joab, the Israelite army attacked that army of allies with this predictable ferocity. And the Ammonites and their allies quickly surrendered to Joab and David. And, and, and so once a fierce army, they now became servants of Israel. So one battle after another, one victory after another. In one battle against the Moabites, David was not as dipl diplomatic or merciful as he was with Hanun. After conquering Gath first, the, the largest Philistine city, and then the land of Moab, David knew that as he conquered this, this army, he had all these prisoners. He knew that if he released the surviving soldiers, he was going to have to deal with them again. If I let all these men go, they're just going to regroup their army and they're going to attack me again. He said, I don't want to fight the same army that I just beat all over again. So what he did was, this is a very unusual story. He had them all lie down shoulder to shoulder. And then he took a length of string and laid it along a, a, a long ways across the line of soldiers. And then 
with the, the length of that string, he had his soldiers kill everybody that was under that string. And, and then using this dreadful selection method over and over again, he decimated the Philistine army. So he laid it out and he killed him, laid him out, laid the string out again, killed those underneath that, laid it out again the third time, and he let the, the third uh, group live. So in other words, he, he, uh, he only left one-third of the army alive, uh, and they were spared and sent home to do that. And, and that seems brutal and heartless to us today, but it was typical of the day in which David reigned. And Israel's enemies literally wanted Israel annihilated from the map. Matter of fact, Israel's enemies today still want Israel annihilated from the map. They don't want to just be stronger than David or rule over him. They wanted him and his people wiped off the face of the earth. So Israel was fighting for, for its survival. But you know what? Even in that process there, you've got to realize David was showing mercy to his enemies to a certain extent because he, he didn't want the entire nation of the, of the Philistines to be totally depopulated. He didn't want the Philistine women to be unable to bear children for a whole generation. He just needed to make sure their army was significantly weakened so that he would, they would not attack him again. So he even showed, even in letting that third live, he was beginning to, sh he showed some mercy in that. And after David achieved these stunning victories, no enemies of Israel remained on Israel's borders. He had defeated the Amalekites, he had broken the, the back of the Philistine oppression. He had defeated the enemies all the way up to Damascus and even to the Euphrates, Euphrates River. He had smashed the Axis powers of Amnon, Assyria, and Moab as well. And he pushed out the borders and secured the nation. Now here's a lesson for us. This is what I want to spend the rest of my time on tonight. If you camp only on what you already have, on past accomplishments, on past blessings, you will be constantly on the defensive. We in our lives and as a church, we need to press out. We need to push the borders. We need to stretch our tent pegs. We need to go further. And, and certainly there are going to be times of, of rest, uh, but there also must be seasons of attack. Pause if you must. Solidify your gains from, the time, time, from time to time. Then get up. And go again. We, mu we must always push forward as a church. And we must always push forward as individuals. If you're, if you're constantly on a defensive, in a defensive posture, then what will happen is you will constantly remain under attack. And always trying to play defense. How, how many of you have ever known somebody that was always talking about how they're under the attack of the enemy? You ever known somebody that was... That's just all they ever talked about. Well, the enemy's just fighting it. I'm always under this attack and all these, all of these things. You know, it's over and over again. Now, listen, I'm not questioning that because the enemy does attack. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying tonight is instead of sitting back and building a nice little fortress around ourselves and trying to survive the attacks of the enemy, there, there's, there's, a, there's a point in time, and I believe the time is now, that the people of God have to rise up and go on the attack and attack the enemy instead of sitting back and saying oh what's the enemy going to do now you know and and if you like this song you have to forgive me because jesus said you have to that's one of the reasons i'm not a big fan of the old song hold the fort now i love the music but you know what that, that's a that's a mentality that says well let's hunker down 
Let's just hang on. That's all we can do is hang on until Jesus comes. Jesus, you know, come and save us. Come and get us now. And, and that's not, I, I don't believe that's the mentality of the church. I don't believe that's what Jesus called us to do. He didn't call us to hold the fort. He, 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 and I believe He says to us, don't just sit back and say, I'm under attack. I'm under attack. Oh, Jesus, come help me. Instead, what we need to begin to say in those moments when we feel the enemy pressing in and we know that He's there and he, we know He wants to destroy us and we know that he wants to destroy the work of God he wants to do nothing but to steal and to kill and destroy in that moment we need to say Lord by your grace and by your power if you will fill me with the power of your spirit in this moment I will go take new ground for Jesus I will go and take new ground away from the enemy I will be used by you I will do what you've called me to do if you'll use me to do that Lord God then I will just trust you to take care of all the mess that the enemy's trying to do. Now, this is what I know. We, we are living in perilous times. And uh, I, I, this is what I believe. As we get nearer to the return of Jesus, we will see greater and greater separation between those who are following Christ and those that are rejecting Christ. And I think we see that. We see that in the world today, in the culture today. There's a widening gap. You know, I mean, there was a time not that long ago um, in our nation when even if you weren't a Christian, you, you kind of lived a good, fairly good moral life most of the time, you know? Isn't that right? You know, leave it to Cleaver. All that kind of stuff. Well, that's not the way it is anymore. It's a greater separation and in a time like this, this is not the time for the church to sit back and say, oh, things are getting so bad out there. The darkness is getting so dark. The, the evil is getting so bad. Let's just, let's just huddle up in our church building. Let's, let's build our little fortress and let's, let's try to hang on until Jesus come. It's not time to do that. It's not time to get sit back and say, I'm under attack from the enemy. Let's build up our defenses. It's time for us as the people of God to put the enemy on the run. It's time for us to put the enemy on the defensive I mean, how many remember the, the phrase? I know you've heard the story and you've read the, the, when Jesus said this in Matthew 16. He said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now I want you to think about that. Because we've had this idea for too long in the church that that, 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 that was talking about the, the enemy coming and attacking us and we can withstand the attacks. But here's, here's what I, I, I know for a fact. Gates are not weapons of offense. Do you ever think about that? You don't carry a gate out to the battlefield to go attack somebody. Gates are, are for defense. So what it's telling us is, you know, it's not that the devil is attacking us and we can hold on. Jesus is saying that we, as the church, as we aggressively move forward with the gospel and attack the kingdom of darkness with the gospel, then the powers of darkness cannot withstand the power of, the, of God that is released through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the enemy has his kingdom. And when we storm the gates of hell with the the preaching of the gospel with the power of the Holy Spirit that he's saying to us, it's not the enemy is attacking us and we can hold on. He's saying that as we go on the attack, as we go take it to the enemy, that he cannot withstand the power of God. That's what he's saying here. 
Listen to me. When the church gets up, when the church starts moving under the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, when you get off of your pew, when you begin to get into the battle for the souls of men and women, when you begin to reach out to people, when you begin to be used by God, if you will do that, if you'll move forward under the leadership and the anointing of the Spirit of God, He's saying to us that when you preach the gospel to those people, through your words, through your actions, through everything that you do, He's saying that the gates of hell cannot keep the gospel out that's what he's saying he's saying the gates of hell are going to lose and the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to win every single of time that is the power of the gospel that we have forgotten that is what we are called to proclaim not a list of rules but the gospel of Jesus Christ to expand our borders, now to, to, to say to ourselves and to the Lord, I'm not satisfied with trying to play defense, but I'm ready to go forward. I'm ready to take the city for God. I'm ready to expand the borders of the kingdom. I'm ready for God to grow me. I'm, 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 just, I'm not going to be satisfied sitting still and being comfortable in a church pew. I'm going to be used by him no matter what, and the devil cannot stop me. He's saying to us, the gospel cannot be stopped. The gospel cannot be contained. Communism has tried. It didn't work. Persecution has tried. It didn't stop it. Atheists have tried. They can't stop it. Governments have tried and government regulations have tried. They can't stop it. In fact, when the government cracks down, the gospel flourishes all the more. You know, when, when China, I love the story of China because uh, uh, it, when communism took over there and they, they threw out all the missionaries and, and there's a new crackdown on Christians in China right now. You need to be praying for your brothers and sisters in China because they're cracking down on churches again and taking their property like they did before. But when they did that and they began to oppress them and say, saying uh, they, they viewed uh, anybody, any allegiance that was greater than allegiance to the government was a threat. So when they said, we are followers of Jesus, he is first in our lives, the government is not not anywhere near that, then they began to persecute that church and they began to try to squash it and kill the church. And under the, under the, the shadow and under the thumb of the communist government in China, you know what happened to the church in China? It exploded. And there are millions of Christians there. Can't stop the gospel. You can't stop the gospel. The devil and all the demons in hell can't stop it. The gospel will prevail. And there's nothing the devil can do to stop it. The only thing that can stop the gospel moving forward is the church. If we don't take it, if we don't grab hold of this call of God, if we don't grab hold of this commission and say like David, it's time to expand the borders of the kingdom. It's time to move forward. If we don't do it, there is no plan B. This is our calling. This is our purpose. This is why we're here as a church. 
you know, I, I, I mean, I want you to, uh, when you come in here, I want the, the temperature to be right. I want the music to be something that you can worship to. But ultimately, it is not about you. It's not about your comfort. It's not about me. It's not about my comfort. This is about us. We have been called for such a time as this. We have been placed right here in the city of Marion to proclaim the gospel and to expand the borders of the kingdom. So I don't minimize the fact that there are going to be times when you're under the attack of the enemy. I'm not saying that that's not true. That's absolutely true. In fact, if you take seriously what I'm teaching tonight, you will face even greater opposition for the enemy. Because the truth is, if all you're doing is sitting on a pew, he doesn't really care about you. Matter of fact, he's got you right where he wants you. But if you do that, you're going to face more opposition. The enemy will come and attack. But even when that happens, don't just sit back and complain that the devil is attacking. You know, we've we got to be more like the disciples in the early church. I, I, I just, I've always kind of laughed in the sense that, you know, they, they would be called before some council or something and they'd beat them and say, don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And they'd beat them and send them out and they'd, they'd walk out rejoicing. I mean, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? That's like, that's like if you had a kid. And you, and you took him, and they did something wrong, and you spanked them, and they walked out of the room saying, that was awesome, Mom. Oh, man, can you do that again? What are you going to do? I mean, these disciples, they rejoiced at the persecution because they knew they were doing what Jesus had called them to do, and they knew the enemy was going to stir up everything that he could so that to them that was a sign that they were moving forward and they were doing exactly what they're called to do, and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. So don't sit back and whine and complain when the enemy comes and attack. Instead, rejoice and say, I must be moving forward with God. He, he must be using me in ways that I can't even begin to understand. Because if the enemy is concerned about me, then, then I'm going to rejoice because God's doing something. And I'm going to get caught up with him. Instead of getting on the defensive Go on the offensive and take ground away from him. How do you do that? You preach the gospel to people. You tell people about Jesus. You lead them into the kingdom. That's where the battle is won. That's where the ground is won and lost. And, you, and when you begin to do that, you put the enemy on the defensive. And we know this from Jesus himself, that when we move forward, when we proclaim the gospel, this confession of who Christ is, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the gospel. Amen. I want to, I want to pray for us. Lord, let this...